you know, the most successful social movements that I, as I see it, are the ones that you know generate momentum at the grassroots, enough leverage to get things to change. Welcome back to another episode of The Stories Between Us. We're the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story can be told. Yo, today we have the privilege of being joined by one of my great friends, Heath Carter. Heath is Associate Professor of American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he teaches and writes about the intersection of Christianity and American public life. Heath is the author of an incredible book, Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago. He's also the editor of multiple books, and he's currently working on a book that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode. Heath, so good to be with you, brother. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be with y'all. Yes. Yes. So incredible. How's everything going, brother? It's going going as well as can be in these kind of wild times, you know. Uh, yes. Lots of lots of family time right now. We got three boys at home and hanging out with them a lot and doing a little research and writing. So trying to make the best of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. How's I'm so interested. How has teaching changed in this coronavirus moment for you? Oh my gosh, that's a that's a big question. Uh, I mean, right we you know, yeah, we Sorry. we went. No, no, it's a good one. It's important. We um, wonderful, yeah, yeah. Here at Princeton Seminary, we you know we went online pretty announced we were going online pretty early uh, in the in the spring semester, and um, I was teaching a course on American Christianity and race, and um, we were having a really a, you know. A great semester, lots of intense conversations. It's a class that, um, you know, leans a lot into getting to know other people and and kind of like what y'all are doing here, like hearing people's stories and how those intersect with the story of of uh, American Christianity and race. And um, so it was tough in some ways to have to move that conversation into a digital space. I mean, not. You know, there's many, many wonderful things about, you know, things that the digital spaces make possible um, in terms of being able to get people in from all over the country and whatnot. Uh, but it was, I, you know, I still I feel like having to do that so quickly and in a moment where a lot of my students were experiencing a lot of challenges. I mean, partners losing jobs and um, people, you know, people, family members getting sick uh, and trying to navigate all of that through through a digital platform was something that was pretty new to me. Um, and I think new to a lot of the students and a challenge, but you know, this fall we're, we're gearing up. Um, I'm on sabbatical. I'm going to be working on my book this fall, but uh, my colleagues are gearing up for a, a semester that's looking to be mostly online. Um, so mm. hopefully with a little more lead time, you know, people are going to be able to, to kind of be creative and, and find like, you know, ways to make the best of this, this moment. Yeah. So I've heard it said that if you want to understand who you'll become, uh, you can go back to your childhood. So we're interested. What are those moments in your personal and professional life that help you kind of navigate who you are today? You guys don't mess around. You just go right for the big ones, <laughs> the big questions. I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, yes. um, it's it's hard to, to choose, like you know, just one moment. Um, mm. 
I I grew up in Kansas and Southern California and spent kind of my childhood between those two places. And I mean, one of the kind of common threads was, um, you know, church was really important in my family. And I grew up in, uh, you know, I guess thinking about, you know, you, you read off a little bit about my, my interests, Dante, about, you know, American Christianity and public life. And I would say that was mm. instilled in me really early. Um, mm. You know, I, I grew up in a family for which church was important. And I grew up in churches, which um, made all kinds of connections between the gospel and uh, politics, not, you know, particular politicians or whatnot. But um, I grew up with all sorts of assumptions um, and really grew up kind of, I would say, in the long shadow of kind of the moral majority in the 1980s and mm, the 1990s. Wow. Um, a movement that, you know, made all sorts of assumptions and connections between Christianity and public life. And I mean, for me, so I would say like, you know, just growing up in that environment really shaped me pretty deeply. Um, and then I went to a, a Catholic Jesuit university in Washington, D.C., and I'd never lived in a city before. And um, I had never really met so many serious Christians who thought about Christianity so differently than I did. Um, wow. And that was a really powerful experience for me. And I would say, you know, it was really a kind of moment of beginning a, a new leg of my own journey. You know, as I, I had a, a, my roommate, my freshman year was someone, you know, he'd grown up the son of a democratic congressman, you know, in a kind of blue old Catholic part of upstate <laughs> wow. New York. And, and we just argued our way through our freshman year and it started me down a journey of, of really re, you know, kind of revisiting some of the things I had assumed growing mm. up. Um, so I, I mean, I could say a lot of other moments. Chicago was a huge, uh, you know, important shaping place for me in terms of um, I moved to Chicago after college and just fell in love with that place and that city. And it's a beautiful, mm. amazing city. It's a deeply broken city. It's a city where I, kind of came uh, face to face with inequality in a new way in my own personal life and started to make connections between that and my faith uh, that I hadn't made before. So, I mean, lots of, lots of different moments. Um, but I think the through line, you know, just that sort of those questions about what does the gospel have to say about how we, how we live together in the world have been kind of mm. consistent points of interest for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I think, you know, especially today, you know, as and we'll get into this a little bit later, you know, as we're all in some sense trying to wrestle uh, mm. with the intersection of uh, politics and faith, uh, you know, I think even that language of, you know, good news uh, in mm -hmm. this in this society, you know, people kind of narrating and navigating, you know, what we believe to be good news uh, for for many people uh, in the space. And, and this actually is a great way, in, in some sense, to segue into your book. Uh, you're working on a new book entitled yeah. On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality. Number one, that is an absolute stunning title. Amazing <laughs> like, title. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, thank you. amazing title. Yeah. And, it, and, and, yeah. and, you know, we've had this conversation before where, you know, you're trying to retell the story. Uh, of American social gospel. Back in the day, you wrote 
an incredible review of Gary Dorian's book, The New Abolition, yeah. W.E.B. Yeah. Du Bois and uh, Social Gospel. And even it, it, it reminds me of um, Jack Jenkins. He just wrote a piece with the New yeah. Yorker, I think, Is There an American Religious Left? So yeah. for those who aren't familiar uh, yeah. with the language of social or even gospel, uh, yeah. What is the social gospel and its tradition relevance for today? Yeah. Uh, so lots of different ways to answer or kind of approach this question. I mean, in the churches that I grew up in, social gospel was like a dirty word. It was a bad thing, right? And it was it was a way of talking about people who had given up kind of the true gospel for um, concerns about politics or social justice or whatever. Mm-hmm. It had really kind of left God behind. In academic circles, the social gospel for much of the last 50 or 60 years has really been a way of referring to kind of elite Protestant, white Protestant Mm. preachers in the early 20th century. And, you know, oftentimes if you talk to historians, you mention the the term social gospel to say, oh, you mean Walter Rauschenbusch. And Rauschenbusch was this Mm. kind of well-known church historian and theologian in the early 20th century who wrote a book that kind of swept through church circles called Christianity and the Social Crisis in 1907. But I'm telling a new or kind of different sort of story that builds on some work that's been done in the last 30 or 40 years and, and sort of makes an argument that the social gospel is not just this sort of narrow intellectual movement in theological circles mm-hmm. in the early 20th century, but that it's a, a larger tradition in American Christian life that um, has deeper roots, especially in black mm. church communities, um, mm. and that has a much longer legacy. So the, the kind of time frame of the book is like the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, mm. and, and looking especially at the ways that, uh, so the way I think about social Christianity is a tradition of Christians who have seen the fight against inequality as a central part of what it means to be a believer in the modern world. Mm. Um, wow. And, and when you, when you look at through that lens, I think what it allows you to do is to think about not just the Walter Rauschenbusch's and these kind of, uh, high theological folks, but, um, so many people in black church traditions, in the Catholic church, in a wide variety of evangelical and liberal Protestant traditions who have, maybe not been theologians, but they've had lots of theological intuitions. They've had the idea that God's on the side of the lowly, God's on the side of the poor, God's mm. on the side of those who are, uh, God identifies with those who have been lynched. I mean, these kinds of ideas mm. that are, are uh, go much deeper in the soil. And so I, I look at kind of the grassroots origins of this tradition and kind of uh, communities of ordinary believers and then the ways that it makes its... Uh, it's sort of way into church institutions and, and the federal government, things like the new deal are really deeply influenced mm. by mm. Uh, social Christianity. But then I think the biggest kind of the legacy of it is in the mid 20th century, when you have these massive faith infused labor and civil rights movements that in many ways mm. are drawing on this kind of tradition um, in many ways, many times quite explicitly looking back to, earlier forebears who have kind of had these ideas that, hey, God has something to say about inequality. Um, mm. It's a sin and it needs to be fought. Uh, so, you know, I, I see social Christianity as this kind of wide and deep tradition in American life and one that in its own day, you know, before the rise of the religious right really made a, a huge impact on the nation. In fact, you could argue that by the time it was cresting in the 1960s and 70s, 
that in, you know on many grounds uh we were more equal than we'd ever been and more equal than wow. we've been ever since um wow so the book kind of tells that big story that's a it's it's a fun i'm really enjoying you know working on it it sounds yes. like a great book yeah <laughs> right yeah. it really fun. does it's fun. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be really. Uh, you know, I'm trying to write it in a way that'll engage a wider audience and trying to kind of collect. One of the challenges of the book, you know, it's a hundred year national story. How do you how do you find your way through? You know, who are the? I mean, for me, the question is like, who are the interesting characters that help me to tell bigger stories? Um, so yeah, I'm I'm loving it. Loving it. Yeah, that's fire. And I think, you know, especially today, oftentimes when people think about, you know, Christianity in yeah. American public life, you know, conservatives have oftentimes become the kind of story that has been told yeah. about, you know, yeah. how does religion intersect with democracy? Uh, right. And many people, in some sense, you know, they see the language Christian and it becomes incredibly weird uh, because yeah. oftentimes our only, you know, understanding of what role does a religion play in American public life is this kind of, you know, understanding of conservatism as the only way of being religious in yeah. public. And you're doing some incredible work of kind of reclaiming that space for traditions yeah. in some sense that have been lost. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm so interested. How do you, you know, how do we read movements for social change through this lens of mm. say the religious left so like black lives matter today i yeah. i want to make the case in some sense that we should read that movement for social change through the lens of the religious left how do you how do you navigate that yeah well i mean one of the things that i i'm not Oh, you know, I don't want to say that like every movement for social justice has come out of the tradition that I'm writing about. Um, but what I do want to yes. say is that um, there have often been people along the way. And if you if you look into the historical record, um, it's not hard. I mean, I was reading a book by a labor leader from the late 19th century today, and he was riffing actually on these exact lines that with the title of my book on Earth as it is in heaven. He says, you know. Um, people accuse us of being utopians, but then they tell their flocks to pray this prayer where it says, you know, wow. uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so which one is it? You know, which one? Do wow. mean? And and so, I mean, I think what what is true in the history of the United States, modern United States, is that um, when you start to look at social movements, uh, hmm. it's not that they were all, you know, entirely run out of this tradition that I'm writing about, but you're going to find people who came to the movements through their faith. And, and mm. certainly that would be the case for Black Lives Matter. And, and you can mm. see that um, at the level of leadership, people who are uh, helping to galvanize the movement. But I'm also really interested in kind of at the grassroots. And mm. my guess, I mean, you know, we're going to it'll be interesting to see when the histories of Black Lives Matter are written. Um, my guess is you're going to find a lot of energy for these for this movement in the grassroots and churches and people thinking mm -hmm. about quoting scripture and, and, and finding in, in the Bible and in the Christian tradition, um, really good reasons to join the movement, to be out in the streets. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, you see that very, you know, clearly in, in news reports and on Twitter and whatnot, 
but I think it'll be I think it'll be held up as people turn to write these histories of, of the present too. You know, it's so interesting that you bring up um, writing history because um, this year and obviously throughout America's life, it's had a complicated history. Um, yeah. You know, the Alabama Department of Archives and History actually on June 23rd released probably the best written statement that I've read so far of this time and um, included objectives on how they illuminate their very purposeful kind of, um, I hate to use this term, but whitewashing of history and very much telling the story of one side and really hiding Mm. the other side. And they, Mm. they just faced it and then listed a number of objectives afterwards to, to how they'll fix it. Um, I have a couple problems with that. One, how can you fix something that's lost forever? Right. And then Mm. Mm -hmm. two, in the time today um, and the struggle to define history and how we're writing it, one of my favorite quotes right now, it's actually in my Instagram bio, uh, history has its eyes on you. And mm-hmm. um, in the in the moment to define history right now, what story we tell has been on display in social media, in everyday conversation, and especially through the argument of confederacy versus mm-hmm you know, the union and the monuments Mm -hmm. and all that. Um, Mm -hmm. Why is our collective memory as a society Mm -hmm. such a struggle and such an argument? And what Mm. critical role do historians play today in how we will remember whether it be reconciling, uh, I'm sorry, reconciling the, that like, like Alabama's um, archive Mm -hmm. department Mm -hmm. will, or just writing Mm -hmm. a better story today? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, I, I, you know, as a historian, I've obviously got a, a, a lot. I mean, this is something that I care about a lot. I think it's really important. Uh, yeah. But I think it's it's also something, and, and historians have written about this, that um, one very clear answer to your question, I mean, why, why do we struggle over how to tell our national story and state and local stories so much is because people know that um, the way we tell those stories really matters. And in the last generation, um, since the kind of uh, heyday of the modern civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s, um, one crucial terrain in the battle over civil rights and racial justice has been the telling of that story. Um, mm. And in, in fact, such that today, despite the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. was reviled in many, many camps mm. during his lifetime, yeah. he's today embraced and people embrace him, you know, almost universally and then put, want King to do their work. Right. right. And so, wow. Yeah. And That's so real. Pe- people are always looking for King and, and, you know, they, they know that history, the way that we tell these stories, um, there's power in that. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. uh, different interests, different, um, powerful groups in our society have sought to, to kind of, corner the way that we tell these stories. And, mm-hmm. and I think, um, you know, it's in some ways, this is a, a moment of reckoning and, um, you know, it, it's been going on for a while. What we've seen in the last couple of months with monuments is not, it's not a new conversation exactly, right. but we may be reaching a new mm-hmm. moment in it. Um, I think mm-hmm. about even some of the work, the incredible work that Nicole Hannah Jones and other folks did on the 1619 project and the way that that really uh, roiled the waters 
um, you know, lots of accusations of, oh, this is, you know, pure revisionism and, you know, they're making stuff up and they're tainting the story of the nation. And um, part of what I found notable, I mean, you know, you had some really prominent historians um, weighing in against that project, but I mean, you know, and, and there were particular claims that, you know, in some cases, the authors of the project have walked back a little bit and there's certain things that you can quibble with, but the overall argument that, in fact, you know, anti-Black racism has been a core unifying thread in mm. American history. Yeah. Um, I, I don't understand how that, that that's got to be a really important argument that if you're going to yes. think about the story of this nation, you got to wrestle with it. So, oh, yes. I mean, I think that's that's been such an important work that they've done in really bringing that argument into the public conversation. And, and in my view, uh, elevating i mean we've had a, a you know a lot of conversation over the last year about that argument and that's such that's important work so you know i mean i think that historians journalists um people who are are really taking a close critical look at the story of the nation they have a crucial role to play in kind of the ways that we steward the past but the ways that we steward the past have a lot to do with questions of what do we do now um mm. how did how did we get here and how might we you know, best move forward. Um, so it's a high stakes, it's a high stakes conversation. And we don't always think about, sometimes people, you know, say, oh, you're a history professor. Ugh, you know, sounds kind of boring. <laughs> but but, but it, it, it really is high stakes in terms of, mm. of not just academic conversation, but about everything from, yeah, the way we, the monuments we, we put up in our streets to how we, how we form children to think about the nation. Um, so it's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I think historians and, and many other folks, I would say there's lots of, I mean, journalists in the last five or 10 years, Ta-Nehisi Coast, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and many others who have, have taken the work that's happened sometimes too much, a little bit, you know, uh, in academic journals or whatnot, and brought it out into the public in a way that's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and many, many of my historian colleagues are also doing that too. Um, and I think all to the good you know, through op-eds and through, uh, you know, popular pieces and books and and through presence on Twitter and whatnot. Um, that's really crit- critical work. Yes. So I um, want to touch back real fast on the project of 1619 that you mentioned. I am um, in Hampton, Virginia currently, the, yeah. the homeland and um, kind of like the cornerstone of this of this whole project I remember last year when it first um when we first when I first learned about it at least and then Fort Monroe had this huge event on 1619 and the 400 year commemoration um Mm. and it was actually such a great project why um really why do you think that the story is so important to tell right now Mm. of those first Mm. enslaved Africans Mm. that were brought to 1619 and how come Mm. even to this day they are told as um as if they were free to come here as if they chose to come here you know that's been kind of like the the story um of enslaved Africans for so long the the choice yeah. of them coming here and even yeah. um even when i speak to my coworkers um and we we often have very controversial questions and conversations at work <laughs> probably probably like we shouldn't have but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um they one person always brings up um about 
you know, like the Irish were slaves, the Japanese were slaves, the Chinese were slaves. And, you know, even mm. my people, Indians, um, not Native Americans, but in Indians mm. from India, we mm. were slaves mm -hmm. in West India for a long time. So how come the story gets rewritten to be indentured, mm. indentured servants instead of just plainfully enslaved people? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot to think about there. I mean, what, one of the things that, as I think about your question, you know, what, what is it that um, prevents us from coming kind of face to face with some of the, mm -hmm. the darkest aspects of our history? Um, you know, there's a, a long running going all the, you know, back to the 17th century um, vein of kind of uh, American exceptionalism and, and, you know, kind of wanting to believe that there's something particularly good, God ordained, right, um, noble about the project that has unfolded in the wake of uh, European settlement of, you know, on this continent. And, um, that's been hard to shake. And, and mm. you hear that in the, in the conversations even that have unfolded this past year in response to 1619, where, where, I mean, one of the critiques I think of that whole project has been, well, aren't you overstating how, how much, how central this story is to the nation's story? Um, and I think that's because even, you know, kind of uh, progressive, histories of the last, you know, generation have often wanted to find kind of that redemptive narrative in the American story mm. that, you know, this was, this was, a, um, yeah, there, there were lots of, of mistakes and lots of, uh, maybe even deeply evil things that have happened along the way, but that in general, this is still a special place. And, um, in general, you know, depending on the, on the history, depending on the, on the author, you know, there's often a narrative of like a kind of progressive realization of our ideals. Um, mm. wow. and I think, and I think that that's been that you know, 1619 for sure, but also, um, the events of the last, I mean, you know, really it's never been a time when there weren't events that could have called that right. narrative <laughs> into question, yes. but, right. but yes. certainly for many people who, um, you know, most recently, you know, watched or, or heard the story of George Floyd being murdered. I mean, that um, is a it, it shakes up that that sense of, oh, we're different somehow, that somehow this nation is is qualitatively better or more, uh, you know, redeem, you know, redeemable in some way than other nations. And, and that, yeah, that's. I feel like that's kind of where we're at is, is, you know, kind of struggling, wrestling over that, that, that kind of fundamental question about what kind of nation is this? Um, wow. So yeah, it's tough. I mean, this is a, we're at a, it's is a, I mean, I think that the, to the extent that there's a reckoning happening right now, and it obviously remains to be seen sort of what may come of everything that's happened in the last month or two. Um, but it's a it's a reckoning that's been long deferred. I mean, we've we've had reckonings, many many reckonings along the way, um, and that yet somehow things get pushed down the road again. And so it'll be interesting to see if this is a different kind of moment. Yeah. So um, the the next question I have as a as a follow up to that is, 
um, in telling the story, you know, we've heard the term about being an ally. Um, mm. How is it as very blatantly, how is it being a yeah. white person right now, being an ally yeah. and doing this yeah. work that you're doing that's very important and um, navigating mm. the role of religion, particularly Christianity in the American public life, but also in social movements. So uh, what yeah. what is it to, to be an ally and how can mm. people become better allies? Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge and really important question. I know for lots of folks who are kind of um, becoming sensitized, maybe in a new way, white people, um, there's kind of been a lot of uh, soul searching around around these kinds of questions. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a formula for being an ally, but I guess some of the things that I've learned along my way um, my previous position was in Northwest Indiana. I was uh, on faculty for seven years at a place called Valparaiso University. And while I was there, um, got really engaged in civic life in addition to the life of the university. Um, and that was a community that had uh, deep and troubled past and present, like much of the nation does um, when it mm. come, came to racism. And, um, you know, for me, as I kind of found my way into my first academic job and into some kind of local activism and, and involvement, um, I think the things that I've found to be really key are that, you know, I think it's important for white people like myself to um, to to to, keep, to bring energy and life, but but not to feel like uh, we are the ones who have all the answers or that know everything that needs to be done that I think it's, it's been really important in my own journey to um, listen and befriend and work alongside kind of oftentimes, depending on where you're at. I mean, I think in most communities around the country, there are already organizations, there are already movements. And I think sometimes when white people kind of become sensitized to things, there's not a need always for people to reinvent the wheel. A lot of times what's needed mm. is, uh, you know, for people to bring their energy and their, and their resources and um, whatever they can give into movements and organizations that have been doing this work for a really long time. And, yeah. and I, I see that to, in many ways as, as some of the, the key and, and really listening to what, um, you know, black leaders in communities, uh, other leaders of color in communities have, you know, have been saying and doing. And I think, I, I don't know, I see that as kind of the the central thing. It's not about just being passive. Um, you know, I think that people need to, to give of themselves um, greatly to, to these movements, but not feeling like uh, now I'm aware and now it's my turn to lead or something like that. I think that's mm, a, wow. that's a common that's a common mistake uh, yes. that, that people that people make. Um, and I think, like I said, I, I think for people to just find out what's going on in your community. Um, wow. And, and that is a huge, it takes some work to, oftentimes to do that, but that, that is really important work. And people, uh, you know, will be really grateful. I think in many cases, if you show up and you say, hey, I want to learn from you. I want to help however I can. I don't know what the right thing is to do all the time, but um, how can I, how can I jump in? Uh, mm. So that's, that's, I mean, I guess that's like a kind of 
good starting place, I think. But it is, it's, yeah. it's challenging uh, to, to figure, to find, I think for people to find their way into kind of the rushing currents of our moment, um, it can be tough, but it's doable. And I just encourage people to, to wait in and, and not to be afraid to make mistakes. Cause I think, you know, yes, you will make wow. mistakes. Every, all of us make mistakes. And, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes the fear of making mistakes also prevents people from jumping in mm-hmm. and, yes. um, and we have to make room in social movements for people to make mistakes. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, I think that's, that's important too. So I don't know. Those are, those are some thoughts off the top of my head anyway. Yeah, and I think I think yeah, in this moment, it's especially as you say, it's so important for us to make room yeah. for mistakes when we're talking about movements for social change. I was just recently reading um, a, uh, a a comment on a post that my friend Dan put up, and it was like, you know, hey, normalize saying I got this wrong, and you know, yeah. I've changed my mind because yeah. in this moment, as we're going through a moment, both of social, political, and even religious reckoning in this moment, it's easy to feel as if we have to move from, you know, progress to perfection very quickly. Right. It's, it's very easy to feel as if in some sense, I asked my white friends, you know, what, what did it in this moment? And, And many talk about, you know, George Floyd, seeing George Floyd die in such a brutal way, Hmm. As, as, as they wrestle with the kind of compounded nature of systemic police brutality, that that moment woke them up. But then what they followed up with, there was immense shame. Yeah. Yeah. And Brene yeah. Brown, I think she said yeah. something to the effect that, you know, shame is not, you know, a tool for social justice. Mm. Yeah. 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 That was kind of interesting, you know, that shame, you know, the role that shame plays in this moment of social change and and, and being able to say, you know, hey, yes, I'm someone who got it wrong and I'm working on it. I'm trying to get it right. But also it's, it's very hard when on the other side of those mistakes, you're able to go back home and that's okay. Yeah. But we have to endure the trauma of cleaning up many mistakes that other people have made, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think part of my, you know, in my corner of, of our society, you know, I spend a lot of time in the classroom. Um, and I see, you know, I teach about race. I teach about, um, social movements and, you know, one of the things that I've seen happen a lot in the classroom and recognizing just, you know, I haven't figured this out myself, how to, how to kind of <laughs> best manage this or whatnot is, you know, a lot of times um, white students coming into my class and, and having kind of epiphanies and revelations and oftentimes mm. wanting to talk about those and externalize that. And, you know, um, on the one hand, I celebrate them kind of coming to a new level of awareness of history and faith and whatnot. And I think that's really, really important. I believe in that work. Um, mm. But it can also be really painful for people, mm. you know, black students, students of color to hear, Oh, you didn't, you didn't, that's my life every day. Uh, you didn't know that. Or I've been living with that for years. I've been carrying that burden. And to hear you say, I never realized, or I never learned. Um, 
there's that's painful and and yeah. and tough. And so I think you know some of this is we we are living at some level in kind of some of the the wreckage that uh, we have inherited from from the past and we're not going to navigate it perfectly and it's going to be hard. And I think um, part of what we got to do as uh, churches and people of faith and, and people who are invested in social justice is, you know, you got to bring, I don't know, be, be people of integrity and, and, mm. and try to try to bring yourself and do the best you can and learn and apologize and find ways to, to forge stronger connection to people that have different experiences with you. And it's, it's tough and messy. And sometimes some days I wonder, can we really do it? Um, but I, I think you just got to keep, keep working at it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's just so important in this moment is to realize that, you know, anti-racist in this moment is not a point to achieve, but yeah. a practice to actualize. Yeah, it's not yeah, a right. destination, but it is a discipline. It's yeah. a type of muscle that we must work out in this moment of learning of stress. It's just like working out, you know, you yeah. jog, yeah. you know, right. and yeah. it you have to push yourself. You have to get out on the road and you got to run. You got to make sure that you put yourself in the right position to succeed. I mean, yeah. there's all of these things that you must do in this moment to try and put yourself in the best possible position. But your thing every day and even in working out is to master showing up. Mm. And I think if people yeah. in this moment can master showing up in this moment, I believe in some yeah. sense it may not move much, but it yeah. will create meaning in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Showing up is huge. And that's, I think, yeah, overcoming fear and the kind of paralyzing fear of making mistakes and doing something wrong. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of it. And I think, yeah, people just, I think you're right. Showing up is, is the biggest single thing you can do. Definitely. Speaking of showing up, Michelle yeah. Alexander wrote this absolutely incredible op-ed, probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite essays this year where Michelle Alexander, who's a professor, I think she's at Union Theological yep. Seminary now, yep, teaching that's right. where she yeah, where she wrote, America, this is your chance. Hmm. And one of the interesting things she brought out was that in some sense we were in a moment a catalytic moment that as many people say, you know, we went through one reconstruction uh post-Civil War. Then we went through the second reconstruction during civil rights movement. And many people as I think Reverend William Bar Reverend Dr. William Barber uh, of Repairs of the Breach and the Poor People's Campaign would say, you know, we're living in a third reconstruction. Hmm. And I think hmm. more than any question people are asking right now, you know, as Michelle Alexander brings out is that, you know, we have to re-understand, you know, we have to learn from our racist past and our present. Uh, secondly, we have to reimagine what the language of justice means in this moment, hmm. as well as we have to reimagine this kind of vision and practice of uh, social and particularly economic justice. Hmm. And I think one of the questions that I have been getting, and I'm assuming that you and others would have been getting as well, is what comes next? 
How are you navigating yeah. that question that people are asking? What yeah. comes next? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, whew, that's a big one. And, and I it think, is, you know, and, and, you know, we historians are always nervous about answering it, but I'll, I'll say, right. I mean, what, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've, I've really been thinking a lot about and, and that relates to the book I'm writing. It relates to, I think, some of the spirit of the moment that we're in. Um, I think it takes, you know, as I look through kind of, uh, high points in, in American history, American social movements and whatnot. Um, I think that you need both people who are thinking kind of dreaming big dreams, uh, kind of, mm. you know, those radical, uh, visionary prophetic kind of folks who can really dream big dreams. And then you need people who can, create the institutions and the kind of uh, social methodologies to realize those dreams. And, and, and I think one of the things that I wonder about that I worry about um, is, you know, I'm, I think what we've seen in the last couple of months is the ways in which, you know, why we need those big dreamers, because in the last couple of months, um, what we've seen are dreams that have kind of existed on the fringe of, of conversations come into mainstream public conversation, you know, conversations about criminal justice, conversations about the police that have really been, um, you know, many, many people haven't been engaged in those conversations at all. Suddenly it's at the center of our national life. And, and so you need, you know, it's, it's there in part because people have been dreaming those dreams for a long time. Um, but, you know, I, I think we really need um, a, a lot of uh, the same amount of energy, I guess, that, that we have going into dreaming right now. We really need it for how do we how do we move our institutions forward? And, and I think that's, you know, there's a lot of uh, righteous indignation that I think is really justified. I mean, institutions are failing us everywhere we look, um, especially younger generations are looking at the strong likelihood of a uh, lower quality of life than their parents, certainly than their grandparents. Mm. Um, we don't, you know, the political dysfunction of our moment, uh, the ways in which, you know, all around us, I mean, our crumbling infrastructure, I mean, so many ways in which kind of the institutions that structure life don't seem to be working very well. Um, but I think the answer, I don't see a way forward to a, a, a juster, uh, you know, a more, uh, a better society without institutions. Um, yes. We yes. are, a, we are an incredibly complex, um, diverse, um, you know, kind of sprawling society. And, um, justice is going to in part run through institutional life. And so I, I, I think, as I talk to my students and as I, as I, you know, talk to my own friends, I mean, uh, we've got these big dreams and we got to figure out how do you turn the institutions that, that shape our, our everyday life, um, big and small, how do we, inf you know, get those dreams working inside those institutions. And I think the, the one potential mistake can be to say, 
you know, uh, I'm done with all these institutions. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I mean, I think mm. it may be that, and, and what we're seeing, you know, we may, we may see in, in our lifetime, uh, institutions that were really important a generation ago die. And that's, I think that's fine. Um, but mm. what are the new things? What are the things that we're building? Um, mm. and I, sometimes I worry that, uh, there's because of the kind of righteous indignation about, the ways that the, the kind of institutions we've got are failing us, that there's not the kind of uh, determination to forging kind of institutional forms of social righteousness. And I think we really need that. Um, so I think that's one of the big questions I've got on my mind right now. As I look at history, I, I see the ways that like revolutionaries and reformers work together. And mm, wow, um, that's good. And right now, you know, a lot of times in the public conversation, it seems like revolutionaries and reformers are uh, at each other's throats right now. And, and I think uh, it's, it's because these disagreements matter a lot. And, and um, I, I think that people care a lot. And so that's a, that's a good thing, but we got to find a way to uh, collaborate, I think. And, and you need people, you know, the most successful social movements that I, as I, see it are the ones that, you know, generate momentum at the grassroots enough leverage to get things to change. And you need people on the yes. inside of institutions that will help you do that, who will go to the, the board or whatever and say, Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but we got a grassroots uh, thing happening out there. And if we don't change, we're going to die. Um, if mm. we don't change, we're going to become irrelevant. If we don't change, we're going to not be on the right side of history. I mean, whatever it is, mm. you need people on the inside of these institutions who can maneuver them um, in the way they need to go. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if we've got it in us to to be able to do that dance right now. But I think I hope we do. Wow. And I know we got a lot of energy uh, for big dreams. And we just got to figure out the way to to make them come come alive, like in kind of the the brass tax sense, you know? Mm. Man, that's so good. And I think, you know, that's something that Michelle Alexander hits on in, in that particular essay is this need, you know, for solidarity in this moment. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. this, this language, you know, of solidarity as a political commitment would have grown out of these kind of labor movements, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Labor and civil we, rights both. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so in some sense, how I would love to hear in some sense, what do you think we can learn, especially as you, I, I love, you said three words that just completely just hit me. You, you said dreaming, reformers, and revolutionaries. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, at, looking at the collaboration, the kind of, social dreaming in the midst of social suffering and segregation yeah. that kind of grew out of the labor movements, grew out of civil rights, grew out of reconstruction. Yeah. You know, how can we learn solidarity as a political commitment from, you know, those movements? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot in in these stories of of people finding, uh, and and I and I, I would want to emphasize that in some ways, obviously, these movements unfold in the shadows of some of the big headlines of the day. I mean, obviously, the big story. I mean, 
1619 or, or, you know, you know, other great histories of this country will underscore the ways in which, unfortunately, uh, solidarity has faltered um, mm-hmm. along the way too often, right? Where it's happened, though, um, you see people, I mean, I, I just finished a chapter about a woman named Mary McDowell, who was a middle class white woman who, um, you know, in the midst of this incredible strike, the Pullman strike of 1894, which brought the whole nation's train system grinding to a halt and, uh, you know, made it seem like for a moment labor was going to defeat big business. And then the, the federal government intervened on the side of the company. Um, she, wow. in the wake of that, you know, everybody in her very kind of uh, do-gooder Christian community, middle-class communities, they all looked at that strike and they said, you know, what's the matter with those workers? And she wasn't satisfied with that. And she she was just curious. She said, there must be something more to the story. You know, people pouring their lives into this social movement. What's going on there? And so she went down to the community where the strike had begun and she started to talk to people. And she realized there was more to the story. And before she knew it, uh, she ended up moving into what most people would have considered the like one of the worst neighborhoods in the entire country. In 1894, she moved uh, back of the yards in Chicago Stockyards District. This is the place mm. that Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle about. And Great book, too. Oh, great book. Great book. She, and she spent the Excellent. rest of her life there. She spent the rest of her life there. And, you know, when she first showed up, uh, everybody looked at McDowell and thought she was just an intruder and was suspicious of her and wondered, what, what, what are you doing here? And it took about 10 years for her to earn people's trust. Um, mm. And, and I think there's a lesson there, too, that, you know, solidarity is not something that uh, comes about overnight, even though, I mean, as a Christian, I believe that it's already, it's always already present. I mean, at some level, I believe that there is a solidarity of human interest. You know, we, uh, we, yes. when we love our neighbors, we're doing the thing that's right for our neighbors and we're doing what's right for us. Uh, but, but you know, getting given the brokenness of our world and the realities of our history, um, there's a lot of rightful mistrust out there. And so overcoming that is a huge obstacle. And I think that's part of where um, in the last month or two, as people like ta Coates, who's been famously unhopeful about the United States, you know, he said, told Ezra Klein last month that he was feeling kind of hopeful. And it was partly because you saw white people in the streets. And I think that's a sign, you know, I think for him, it was partly as he talked about it, you know, that his father had been involved in movements and never saw anything like that. Um, And I think, you know, as we said earlier in the conversation, you know, when people start to show up, it's not just about showing up for one protest or showing up one time, but if you start to show up and you continue to show up, that's what Mary McDowell did back at the yards, you can earn people's trust, Um, but it's hard work. And, and it really involves a kind of fundamental reorientation of your life. Um, Cause I think, you know, injustice works for some people, right? I mean, like that's why it continues is because it works for some people. Uh, yeah. it, at least it, it can seem like it does. Now we, yeah. I believe it doesn't really work for their souls. It doesn't really work for their, the, the good of, of who they are, but, but it can feel like it's working and it can feel like when you're, cashing those paychecks or whatnot, that this is, uh, this is something that's good. Um, but you know, it, it involves a lot of hard work and a lot of a kind of fundamental reorientation. So I think do we have the, the raw materials to do that. Yeah. Um, but we also have a lot of, uh, kind of baggage that we have to work through and, and, and people are going to have to 
keep showing up if they're going to earn mm. earn trust. Yes. Speaking of showing up, you know, social change right now is being driven by um, the younger generation who has yeah. enough courage to continue to show up, to ask and yeah. um, ask the really hard questions to even their family members uh, to risk enough for the collective good of a society. What do yeah. you think you've learned as far as like dreaming um, and like reconstruction in this moment? What do you think you've learned from your students and their frustration? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I I love uh, about my students, you know, and I've been teaching for more than a decade now in different spots and. Um, you know, there's been a lot of knocks through the years on millennials and Gen Z, but, um, you know, what I've found and, and continue to find and, and I'm really inspired by, um, is the sense in this, these younger generations of, uh, a, a, like a, a moral seriousness, um, yes. a, like a yes. deep, deep desire to, mm. uh, see the world, be a more just place, a deep desire to, to, you know, forge, uh, relationships and solidarity. I mean, I, I, I think, um, people who, you know, joke about millennials and Gen Z folks as, as somehow being superficial or not, in, you know, just being on their phones all the time or something, they, they don't understand, uh, this generation. Cause I, I see a lot of, like I said, just really, deeply morally serious people who are yes. thinking about uh, structural evil and thinking about, um, you know, what it would look like. I think, I think these younger generations are, are dreaming those big dreams. I think, you yes. know, I, I, I yes. get a lot of hope from that and I, I have a lot of mm. uh, continue to kind of be inspired by their sense of righteous indignation that, you know, mm. they're, they're right actually in some sense that the world is not as it ought to be. And yes. Um, and we need to make sure that that message continues to go out and then we don't feel too comfortable in a world that's as unjust as the one that we, we live in. Um, mm. so I think the younger generations are, are, are there. And the thing that I, I would hope for my students and, and other folks is I think, um, you know, going back to this institutional point that, you know, if you start showing up and if you show up to, community meetings, city council meetings, church annual meetings, if you show up to these places and ask those hard questions of, of the people who are making, who are shaping your communities. And um, I think what people in these younger generations maybe don't realize enough, but I think, you know, I mean, in some cases they do, but in other cases, I'd love to see even more is, is that they actually have the power to start leading these organizations. And, you know, if, you, if you're a 24 year old and you start showing up to your church's annual meeting, people are going to turn their heads and be like, what's that person doing here? Right. Uh, but, <laughs> <Yes>. but actually <laughs> bring now start bringing, start bringing 25, 24 year olds to your church annual meeting. And all of a sudden you got the votes and, and, you know, you got the ability to shape on the ground, kind of the ways that institutions work. And, and to me, that's what, when things start to get exciting is when you say, Oh, we think this is what the church should be doing. And we actually just showed up to the church's annual meeting with 30 people. And this mm. is what we all, we've been talking for the last six months about this thing that we think needs to change here. Um, and that's, that's where we're going. And, and I think, you know, really living into 
the power of of kind of getting organized and and bringing those dreams into reality and that's what i'm excited about and hopeful about uh, as i look ahead is as these generations really come of age and start to be in leadership um the hope that you know they will they won't give up entirely on the institutions uh that structure our lives but that they'll find ways to make them work better mm, that's real that's so real especially as we're thinking about you know in this moment Solidarity and courage are incredibly just powerful virtues right now. Mm. To, mm. If, if we're to use the language of virtue, that yeah. that solidarity, especially within, you know, across faith, across yeah. gender, across sexuality, across tradition, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just so important, especially as we think about your 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 um, work, these movements in some mm. sense, didn't necessarily, I, I won't say, you know, they mastered the art of solidarity mm. yeah. as much as they mastered the trajectory of what mm. it means to live as an expression of solidarity for the social good. Yeah. And so I yeah. think, man, you know, learning from the lives of young people, me and Modi, we're both millennial. Yeah. Uh, learning from the yeah. lives of young people in this moment, hmm. I mean, we we would be. I don't know if we're necessarily reformers. Mother, are you a reformer? Yeah. I, I, I think we're yeah. a little bit more revolutionary than yeah. than, 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 yeah. than reformer. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. and I think that, yeah. that that has something to say in this moment, especially yeah. as Congress is convening every day, mm. as yeah. these local grassroots organizations are convening. I wonder how many people are legitimately taking into uh, account our concerns. You know, this language yeah. of, yeah. you know, reinvestment, defunding the police, reinvestment, right. Right. or the limits of reform in this mm. given system of injustice, yeah. whereby which, you know, you have people who are second class, their labor and their bodies yeah. and their communities yeah. are exploited. They're continually disrespected and even killed. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, this American system, mm. in yeah. some sense, as Alexander would write, isn't broken, but yeah. it's working the way working. it's intended to. Yeah. And yeah. today, young people are forcing conversations of democracy, of, yeah. in some sense, even religion and theology and yeah. humanity and equality and yeah. even questions of love and community. Yeah. They're forcing our collective kind of community, our collective yeah. identity of what we call American, they're calling it into question and yeah. in some sense pressing us to live up to the highest ideas of yeah. American democracy. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think an interesting example of a kind of revolutionary reformer or a reforming revolutionary, depending on how you look at it, it would be uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, AOC. Right. I mean, she yes. is she's someone Absolutely. who's got she's dreaming big dreams and she's she's got huge ideas about what needs to change. She's also working through one of the oldest institutions we've got. Yes. Right. I mean, mm. the uh, House of Representatives, uh, one mm. of the most problematic institutions in certain <laughs> ways. Right. Um, but she's in there doing this hard work of bringing the dreams into the places where federal laws are passed. And I think, I think that to me is really interesting. 
um, you know, as someone who is young and who has a, that, that, that sense of like, yeah, the, the things that need to change are not superficial. This is deep. It's deep. It's long. Yes. It's, it's, it's like, you know, she, I, my sense of her is that she, she knows that believes that fully. And, and she's also in the mix and, and yes. getting her hands dirty in trying to bring something like the green new deal to life. And, and I think yes. that I'm, I'm inspired by that. And I think if you look at the ways that, I mean, to me, she's a perfect example of someone who's empowered by grassroots movements. I mean, the people who first elected her and then the people who continue to rally behind her vision. I mean, I think they authorize in some ways the work that she's doing, but she's also, um, she's, you know, rubbing elbows with all kinds of folks in Washington. And I don't think she's yes. being corrupted by that, but she's trying again to bring these dreams into reality. And you got to have people in places like Capitol Hill that so will good. do that. And, and I, and I'm, so that's why, I mean, I find someone like her inspiring. I don't know if she, you guys know probably better than I do. If she's a revolutionary reformer or reforming revolutionary, what she may be, <laughs> but I, I, I find her example really interesting and inspiring. And I hope, I hope we got a whole lot more folks like her coming down the line. That's so real, man. Heath, this has been absolutely incredible. Yeah. Thank thanks you so much. so much, brother, for so joining lightning. us. Yeah, so great to talk to y'all. I love, I mean, you guys ask the big, the best questions, the big ones. Uh, so yes. hopefully, I feel like we just started to scrape the surface, but we we uh, we got to a lot. So yeah, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yes. Wonderful. So Heath, uh, how can people get in touch with you, brother? I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's an easy way. Uh, my handle is Heath W. Carter uh, on there. So you can follow me there or... Uh, you know, you can find my, if you search my name in Princeton Seminary, you'll, you can see my faculty page and the email or whatnot. I'd love to always love hearing from people and what they're thinking about, about this, uh, really important intersection of Christianity and, and public life in the U.S. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us once again for another episode of Stories Between Us. We are, yes, the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that maybe one day a better story can be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And we are out. <laughs> <laughs>